I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Have you ever watched an apocalyptic sci-fi movie and wondered, could any of this really happen? I'm Carrie Bechet, and on Hypothetical, we explore what-if questions two ways, through speculative science fiction and through insight from the world's most brilliant scientists. And spoiler alert, your favorite sci-fi movies aren't nearly as far-fetched as you may think. Time travel with me into our possible futures on Hypothetical. New episodes every Tuesday available on all podcast apps. That's Hypothetical, H-Y-P-E-R-T-H-E-T-I-C-A-L. You're listening to Muses and Stuff. This is the podcast that's all about the dolls. They were the groupies, the wives, the girlfriends, and the muses who played such a huge role in rock and roll history by simply being themselves. They were sweet, sexy, brave, and powerful. They went after what and who they wanted, and they made no apologies. We are your hosts, Shanti and Lynx. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Muses and Stuff. <laughs> I'm sitting here with Lynx. Hello. It's so nice to be back after last week. Yeah, you weren't here last week, and I talked about the Backstreet Boys, and uh, I just told everybody that you were pull- pulling a Courtney Love and you were off in Alaska, <laughs> just like <laughs> figuring some shit out. I needed that time. How's Alaska? Wonderful. Good. <laughs> <laughs> um, but really, what, like, what's what have you been up to? Um, I've seen a couple great shows recently. I got to see Ryan Adams, and he's always just fantastic. And he was at Massey Hall, and the sound there is just incredible. So that was wonderful. And also got to see Jesus and Mary Chain. Never thought I'd ever get to see them live. So that was unbelievable they were also fantastic uh sadly they said that this was their last tour though so and you were there yeah though i think they said that like 10 years ago mm. so you never know they're one of those bands that uh love and hate each other i think so nice <laughs> yeah but yeah it was wonderful and you got to see 
Mac Marco. Yes. Yeah, I saw Mac Marco a couple of weekends ago, which was amazing. He was the Danforth. Mm-hmm. And, I wanted to uh, go, but it was the same night as Jesus and Mary Chain. Yeah. No, the energy was amazing. Everybody in the room was just having a great time, and I was there with, um, yeah, my family and people who I really care about. So mm-hmm. it was the best. And this weekend, I went to a show at the Horseshoe, uh, Wind Hand, Wind Hand. And I didn't know who they were, but my cousins were in from out of town, and they really liked them. Mm-hmm. And so my cousin's husband said to me, oh, do you think that we could uh, meet the band? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, of course. Sure. No problem. The horseshoe's great for that. It really is. Yeah. And sometimes it's just a matter of, like, you see the person and mm-hmm. you just do it. So I was with him and his friend outside, and they were smoking a cigarette, and I was just out there for some air. I hadn't gone out the outside for the whole night, but on that particular, like, time to go outside, I went, I'm going to go. I'm going to join you guys. So I went outside. We were standing out front. And um, the main uh, the main badass woman from Windhand was outside just also, like, you know, getting some, some air. So my cousin was like, that's her. And I was like, oh, cool. Like, now would be a great time to go tell her that you're a fan and that you came from Sudbury to see her. And he was just like, no, I can't do it. Uh, and so I was like, don't worry about it. I got it. So there was, like, some street artist doing something. Uh, so she was kind of watching so I just asked her what she thought about it and then as I was walking back to the guys she just kind of followed and we all just engaged in a really nice conversation and then my cousin asked for a picture and it was really nice and so it's nice to it's it's happened a couple of times now where like family has asked me like do you think that we could meet this person and I've been like let me let me see what I can do <laughs> I got this. and then I've delivered both times so it's nice to that's great and speaking of the horseshoe I was actually there recently as well for uh, CJ Ramon and I got to hang out with my good friend Randy, who's a, a fellow groupie sister. Hey, Randy. Uh, she actually knew one of the guys in the band. So, yeah, we hung out with them, and uh, it was just so awesome to see Randy. We had so many crazy teenage adventures and seeing bands and meeting bands <laughs> and getting up to no good. <laughs> but they're great stories now, so... <laughs> yes. So, yeah, shout out to you, Randy. I love you, and I'll see you again soon. Wonderful. So I have a couple of things to tell you, and I said, I'll just wait until recording, and then I'll tell you. One of those things is that this weekend, so this May Long weekend, Mm -hmm. is the one-year anniversary of the idea of this podcast. Ooh. Yeah, so... And look how far it's come. I know! That's so exciting. So it was this weekend, last year, that I was sitting outside with TJ, and we were listening to another podcast, and I had just written out a whole bunch of stuff, wondering what I should do with it, and then it was just the moment of inspired thought. Yeah. Yeah, it's what uh, my friend Lindsay B. calls an inspired thought. And when you have one, you have to pay attention to them. Because if I hadn't... Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. So that's when I started writing things down, going, this is what it's going to turn into. And then it was, uh, okay, in June, I'm going to start getting everything together so that it can make this happen. And let this be a lesson to anyone out there listening to this. If you have some idea that you're sitting on, go out and do it. Like, look at how far this has come in a year. It's so exciting. All it takes is you putting in the work and it's certainly worth it. Yeah, and believing in yourself that you can do it. And yeah. then if you have you know, people who... And it just starts with you too, right? Yeah, and, and one step at a time. I, and then other people will, will jump on your 
We'll jump on your inspired thought too. Yes. So speaking of coming, you know, away in, in a year, mm-hmm. we have the TO Web Fest coming up. Yes. So that's going to be this weekend. So this episode comes out on Wednesday. That means tomorrow, Thursday, we're going to be at the CN Tower, kicking things off, meeting everybody. It's exciting that it's at the CN Tower too. It feels uh, yeah. all the more special. Yeah. So last year, this time was an idea. This year is um, a nomination in the category of achievement for a podcast. And we are nominated alongside a couple of really amazing podcasts called Ross Never Sleeps speech bubble podcast and shiko shiko cool yeah so what's been really nice about this is the amount of support from all of the other creators that it's not this kind of like um it doesn't feel like us versus them competition it's everybody's just really excited to be a part of it it's a community supporting one another yeah so there's been a lot of really nice support and sharing things back and forth on um instagram and twitter And then the other thing I wanted to tell you was that the Speech Bubble podcast wrote us a really nice review on iTunes. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll read it to you right now. Please. As the host of my own podcast, uh, nice nice shout out or nice, um, (laughs) what's it called when you promote yourself? Self-promotion. Self-promotion. Yeah. I think it's great. You got to, right? Absolutely. So, oh, the, the, um, the, their name was From Speech Bubble to Muses. As the host of my own podcast, I know how much work production can be and how much time it takes. These girls don't skip on the research and their interviews go way deeper than the superficial junket stuff. I also love the strength and femme positivity that comes through in every episode. Women rock more than ever. Ah, that's fabulous. That's exactly the kind of feedback that we hope to get. So that's wonderful. I'm excited to check out their podcast. Yeah, totally. Thank you. Yeah, so, yeah, WebFest is coming up, and I think that's all I have to say about that. Yeah, well, we'll give you all the info after. Yeah, and we'll, um, yeah, so we've we've got to get into our person this week. This one's an exciting one. Oh, my God. So, Miss Odell, Chris Odell. Yes. I just, I read um, Chris Odell's autobiography given to me by Links. Mm-hmm. And the title of this book is Miss Odell, My Hard Days and Long Nights with the Beatles, the Stones, Bob Dylan, Eric Clapton, and the Women They Loved. That sums it up exactly perfect. Ooh, it's so good. This has been one of my favorite reads. Mm-hmm. So out of all of the groupie books that we've read so far, and we've read a lot so far, oh, yes. <laughs> um, I'd have to say, like, if I had to do a top five, I'd say Pamela DeBar, um... Of course, I'm with the band Confessions of a Groupie. Absolutely. I really liked Patty Boyd's mm-hmm. Wonderful Tonight, Catherine, Catherine James, James. Dandelion, Dandelion, and uh, Miss Odell. That's four. I, I don't even, I can't even think of a five. I did like Baby Buell a lot. Um, it's hard to pick. It's, it is really hard it's so to pick. It's hard to pick. It all, it, for me, it really depends on, I go through phases where I'm like obsessively listening to the Beatles and the Stones and so of course uh, Chris's book would be amazing for that and then sometimes I'm like really into my punk rock and I'll read you know the Please Kill Me by Legs McNeil and those books and it really I I obsessively love certain 
things until until I can't stand them anymore for a while. Oh my god. Okay, that's I have to tell you the story. So I was speaking to a 12-year-old the other day mm-hmm. and I had this song stuck in my head. So I put the song on and I said, "Do you ever wake up in the morning and you have a song stuck in your head and the only way to make it better is just by listening to it?" Mm-hmm. And he was like, "No, not really." <laughs> he was like, "But when I really like a song, I listen to it over and over and over again until it makes me physically sick. <laughs> so I don't have a favorite song. Oh my God, that's me. So that's you. <laughs> I just laughed. Okay. <laughs> oh my God. No, that's definitely me. I do that with like everything in life too, like food, uh, movies. I just, I'll just find something that I really love for a while and then I'll squeeze squeeze all the life out of it and then I'll move on but it's not that I hate that and it certainly doesn't make me sick it's just that my focus shifts for a while but it always comes back for sure yeah um but I definitely I never knew I had a child out there yeah (laughs) apparently so the thing is with Chris O'Dell's book too every third page had a sticky note in it and I don't know how you do your research but every time I stop at something that I find really interesting I just put a ripped up piece of paper in it (laughs) but I took out most of the stickies oh my god because I didn't need them so I just kept every time I said like go read this part of the book yeah because she had such a crazy awesome life she's had a bunch of songs written by her for her by George Harrison Joni Mitchell Leon Russell but like we will get to those yes so thank you for giving me this book I'm and so, i'm i had this feeling that you were going to respond to it oh my god it's the most intimate like account mm-hmm. of the beatles yes that i've ever read and it's really great too because she wasn't um a wife right so th- she does have um a perspective that some of the women don't have because they were like emotionally deep into it you yeah. know but she was a best friend and she was a best friend to patty boyd and maureen yes we'll get to so chris odell was born and grew up and grew up in kyoto oklahoma mm-hmm. okay so she um always she considered herself she called herself an eager helper. She wanted to be liked and accepted and just to be a friend. She wanted to make people happy. Her sister had chronic pneumonia and her father was a teacher and so she was alone a lot. Um, she internalized that she was to take care of myself and do the best that I could and no matter what the circumstances, keep a big smile on my face. So she always considered herself and told herself that she wasn't the center of the universe. Mm -hmm. And that later came in handy with her when she was interacting with all these people like the Rolling Stones. felt like they were the center of the universe. Who (laughs) really believed that they were the center of the universe, that she was always honest with them saying like, I never pretended that they weren't famous or never pretended like I didn't know that they were famous. Mm -hmm. And, but I just let them shine and I was there to be, to, to be there for them. Um, 
the perfect support system. Yeah, no. yeah, yeah. She really was a big support system. So when she was 20 years old, she was living in Hollywood. She had moved there about two years before that. And it was when she was in L.A. at the age of 20 that she had had an, introduct- an introduction that would set off the course of her life. Just a chance encounter. And, and changed it. Do you remember what the chance encounter was? I do. All right. Do you want to tell them? No, no, you go. Oh, okay. You got the notes. Oh. <laughs> you got the many, many, many I've notes. I've got the 14 pages of notes in front of me, so settle in, people. We're going for a ride. Okay. And so it starts. Okay, so she was just one night staying in. She was going to smoke a joint, relaxing when she gets a phone call. And she gets a phone call from her friend Alan who introduced or wanted to introduce her to somebody named Derek Taylor. This was in 1968. Mm -hmm. So she said, I don't really want to come out. And he said, you have to. And then she just had this feeling like, I need to go out and my life will change. And it was absolutely true. So Derek Taylor had just started working for Apple. And so that's where... That's uh, where the Beatles were. The The Beatles had built it. Um, and they had completely hit it off, her and Derek. And they spent the night in Laurel Canyon laughing, smoking joints, whatever. And he said to her, Apple is going to be huge. It would be a very good time for you to appear, you know. I love how back then, like, you could just appear in these people's lives. Yeah. So she didn't go right away. She she didn't go, yeah, right away. Because um, she was like, well, seriously, what, what am I supposed to do? Just pick up and leave and yeah, just go show all the way up to at Apple England Music? And and... It turns out, like, yes, it's exactly <laughs> what she was supposed to do. And she eventually did. So uh, he called her every few months to check in. And there's a really great... Um, yeah, just really great description of what Apple headquarters was at the time in its early days at Three Savile Road, and um, like what their what their mission was at the time. Mm-hmm. So she got to know Peter Asher, yep. and she started working Jane Asher's brother. Yeah, yeah. So he was around a lot. Um, the and, Beatles wrote a song for him. Oh, did they? Yeah. Hmm. So she was saying about how the first time, oh, one of the first Beatles that she ever saw in, like, when she finally eventually got there was Paul McCartney and just, like, how much her heart was thumping. (laughs) Um, And uh, I think it was she was working for Neil Aspinall when she got there. She was his kind of assistant. And Neil was, like, considered the fifth Beatle. Um, So kind of quick when she'd gotten there as well um she was all of a sudden in the same room with peter asher neil aspinall paul mccartney and john and yoko and she doesn't remember a word of the conversation (laughs) because she couldn't believe that she was there yeah one day in california the next day you're sitting in apple like with the biggest rock and roll stars like ever but at this point she was just kind of off to the side like yeah they they didn't know who she was really yet. Um, it was funny because one of the first nights when she was in London, she got uh, set up with somebody and he was an American. So she wasn't pumped about it. But it was another thing that was like somebody was like, let him come over. Let him come over to your place. You're really going to like him. He's kind of lonely. He needs a friend. Um, and it ended up being James Taylor. So he ended up staying and working all night on one of his beautiful songs. 
and uh like he wouldn't leave she said he wouldn't leave <laughs> so she was trying to give him hints what a like, problem yeah putting rollers in her hair <laughs> and he's like do you mind if i just stay and i'll uh i'll just i'll just crash here don't worry and she's like well the bed's really small and she put rollers <laughs> in her hair so he wouldn't try anything he's like oh don't worry about it so she woke up in the middle of the night and he was just like huddled beside her next to the wall kind of <laughs> sleeping and the next day the next day she went to um his rehearsal and was like oh this guy's a genius okay yeah <laughs> um so she was just working at apple just trying to make herself as useful, useful. as possible uh, in the early days so she was working the switchboard at one point she said every morning paul would walk in and he'd do his rounds and that he would pop by to every single room in the building and just make sure he said hello to everybody and so one day he popped into the switchboard and he told her to stick around you'll never know what could happen Aww. yeah so this is when she started getting into recording sessions and the Beatles really started to notice her because the recording sessions were closed mm-hmm. except for like sometimes the girlfriends Personal. would sit there yeah. like and, and watch yeah so she ended up getting in with somebody who was working on the session I forget who it was he just kind of came in and uh, she had asked Paul earlier if she could go and he kind of gave her a weird look and was like yeah sure but then somebody else had said, no, 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 it's totally closed. You can't get in there. And then she ended up getting in. And then when she walked into the stu- studio, George and Ringo ended up looking up at her, giving her a smile. And then Paul gave her this little look as in like, you made it. Aww. Yeah. And so Yoko was there as well. And I don't think any other girlfriends were there at the time. Um, although I wrote that Paul was with Francie. Okay. I don't know who that is. I can't, I can't recall who that is either. Okay. Well, I guess it didn't last long anyways. <laughs> um, so she was in the studio that day, and they needed more people to go up and clap. So oh, that yeah. was the first time she was on a Beatles. And not the last time, but no. it was the first time that she was on a Beatles song. She said she was so busy that day that she didn't even ask what song it was, but she thinks that it was Revolution 9. It all sounds so magical, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. Just show up and hear the Beatles are like making their music, and then, hey, why don't you come in and clap for us totally (laughs) it's like a dream totally and yoko was clapping too and then she said at the end uh john just scrumpled up a piece of paper in front of the microphone and she's like oh so that's how they did a bunch of little weird sounds john liked building up those strange sounds yeah so she was making herself useful and she had a do anything kind of attitude. She didn't care what people needed. She would just be happy to do it. Um, she ended up getting them delicious lunches. And so she really prided on herself on thinking what could they want? Like what would like they tell me that they want this thing and then I do it. But then how can I over basically like, like a personal assistant to everyone at to Apple. everyone yeah so then she actually became peter asher's assistant mm-hmm. so she was moving up a little bit and it was in july of 1968 that she did um backup vocals on hey jude oh, man yeah so there's a really nice moment where she talks about what um like what paul was doing at that time and uh, so everybody was doing the, the background and they all were all clapping and swaying. She says, our separate voices soon blending into one resounding chorus. My fears disappeared because she was worried about getting in and singing, of course. Of course. With my eyes focused on Paul, 
The skilled conductor leading the troops, his hands swooping in circles, the look of joy on his face mirrored on the faces of all the rest of us, I sang my heart out. Uh, her whole life is like magical moments. Jesus. Uh, yeah, it really is. <laughs> So, on January 30th, 1969, it was the final Beatles concert up on the roof roof. of Apple. Yes. And it was essential staff only up there because the roof was too weak to support everyone. But, as it goes, (laughs) when you know the right people or if you're just talking to the right person at the right time, and that's a lot of what she said it was, was Mm -hmm. like a lot of luck, a lot of right right place right time and that's what a lot of people say too and Absolutely, you know yeah. when I read that article the other day about like our neighborhood that we're in right now being the biggest hub of musicians in all of Canada in in one area yeah. so it made me think of that too it's just right place Timing right time is everything yeah and luck and Chris certainly had both of those on her side yeah yeah. And then just who she was. Yeah. What? And it didn't hurt that she was this adorable little blonde. <laughs> the beautiful smile. Yeah. Very friendly. But I don't think that her beauty and I don't think that it, like her looks were intimidating. Oh, you no. know? Yeah. Like, she, friendly. So yeah. welcoming. But she wasn't like, um, like she wasn't a model. She wasn't a, she wasn't a no. you know. Uh, she was approachable. Yeah. So she ended up getting onto that roof because Tony Richmond, the head cameraman, brought her up as his assistant. Nice. Yeah. So Maureen was there. Uh, so Maureen is Ringo's wife. Yep. And um, th- she also tells the account of, well, before I say anything about Maureen, up on the roof she said she was sitting beside Yoko as well. So she mm. got to watch it and she got to look down at the people who were looking up at, like, to figure out what that music was. So, yeah. so um, yeah, at the beginning when she met Maureen, things weren't... They had an interesting friendship. <laughs> Absolutely. So, but you can't blame Maureen because no. people had actually tried to gouge out Maureen's eyes oh like, yeah people tried to scratch her and they, like, hurt her they were crazy back then yeah because of the relationship with the beatles and uh maureen and ringo met when they were 16 and the account of like their separation and the end of their marriage in this book is really sad oh god yeah yep yeah um so she talks about denny cordell Mm-hmm. Denny Cordell being around a lot. And the first time I ever heard about Denny Cordell was when I was watching Tom Petty's Running Down a Dream. Of course. And uh, <laughs> he said something about, you know, the, the heartbreakers. Oh, he's smoking that fucking reefer. <laughs> um, so at the time, Denny was Joe Cocker's manager and producer. Nice. And he was, he was, so Denny was really respected really young. Like the ages of 21 and 24, he was already on fire. People really respected him. And so Joe Cocker was about to sing and record Paul's song, bathroom window she came in through the bathroom window yeah so he was pretty grumpy and when he came in before to record to record he asked anybody for a smoke and chris you know nobody had anything but chris always kept a little bit of hash in her bag just in case and she was like well i've got a hash joint and then all of a sudden joe cocker noticed that she was in the room and was like went and sat My beside new her best friend yeah like bless you and then so all of a sudden um Everybody, you know, smoked the hash joint. The attitude, the feeling, the atmosphere of the room changed. Everybody was happier. (laughs) Um, That's it. Yeah. So that's kind of another funny little story that she's got there. Yeah. 
<sighs> yeah. <laughs> so I like that cover of a uh, bathroom window. It's a good one. Yeah. He really, he really nailed all his Beatle covers. A little help from my friends. Yeah. I, I anytime I I think of that song, I, I think of Joe's version instead of the Beatles. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So another big thing happened shortly after this, and it was at the Isle of Wight. Mm-hmm. So she was going to, she was dating a guy at the time, and she was going to backpack and train there. They were just going to sleep in a tent, you know, like all of the other, she like normal folk, as she called them. So her and her boyfriend were just discussing, you know, the normal folk accommodations when they get a phone call. And they got a phone call saying that Bob Dylan forgot all of his harmonicas. <sighs> and that they needed to go buy more. So they gave them, like, the list of which harmonicas they needed to go buy, I guess, in which, in, in which key. And then they were to send them in a helicopter oh over. <laughs> and she's like, okay, so I'll just send the helicopter over and then we'll take our train. And they were like, no, no, no. You bring the harmonicas <laughs> in the helicopter to the farmhouse where Bob Dylan was staying. <laughs> so she's like, all right. That's an important mission. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so George Harrison and Patty Boyd were there and... Um, as they came down in the helicopter, uh, Patty and George came to greet them, and Bob Dylan was sticking his head out of the second-story window, just watching them come down. She had met Patty twice before this, but it's now around this time where her and Patty really started to like become friends. Build a friendship. So she had met Patty once and just said something like, I love your makeup. I hope that you can teach me to do my makeup sometime. Aww. And Patty just kind of gave her like, oh, yeah, whatever, yeah. or something. And um, like one other time. Oh, it was when George Harrison was in the hospital and she just kind of ran into her briefly. And It must have been whatever. strange, too, for like these women. I mean, to have another young, beautiful woman come in who. Uh... <sighs> OK, well, that was a whole thing. And like yeah. this is a whole thing that I also have written out is that when things get a little bit complicated with like interband relationships and wife swapping and things, a lot of the times they went back to like, well, you know what? Better you than somebody that we don't know. Yeah, it happened a lot where they went well, like, and it's it went both ways with the women and the men going, yep. well, we're just happy that at least she's a part of the group. Keep it in the family <laughs> because we don't want any outsiders getting in on this like family business anyways. Yeah, but, you know, Patty had said she had never met a woman, regardless of how close their friendship was, that didn't try to make a move on George. Yeah, not a single one except for Chris so Chris and so Patty told her this right away and so that's why Patty said well that's why I prefer the being with my sisters mm -hmm. oddly enough <laughs> yeah her sister was with <laughs> Eric Clapton before she was yep but anyways um Chris had kind of made an agreement or like a, an oath to both herself and Patty that George would never get in between their friendship and she held on to that forever that's not that george didn't try oh yeah he tried <laughs> but um chris wouldn't do it that's so, a good friend yeah so they started getting close you know george and maul who is um george's bodyguard patty and chris all played tennis together during that festival um and then they have a she gives a really awesome description of um seeing bob dylan walk down the stairs with his girlfriend sarah Falling. And Bob got his harmonicas. 
falling behind. <laughs> and Bob certainly, certainly got his harmonicas. And he married Sarah. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, so she was just talking a lot about what kind of magical woman Sarah was and how she just floated down the stairs with, uh, oh, Sarah. Um, walking down the stairway with his wife, Sarah. Oh, they were married at the time. He mm. looked as though he just rolled out of bed with his hair tousled, his shirt untucked, and his face unshaven. Oddly enough, he seemed perfectly matched with Sarah, who was elegant and soft-featured, dressed in flowing clothes that gave her the look as she floated down the stairs of an angel descending from the heavens. He was the hoodlum to her choir girl, the knave to her queen, the beast to her beauty. Aww. And yet, when Sarah stood close to me, I felt the intensity of her gaze and the keen intelligence that directed it. Sarah was um, sort of a socialite. She came from a really wealthy family, and it's it's been said that um, this was around the time that Edie Sedgwick apparently had a thing for Bob Dylan, and uh, she was really heartbroken when she read the newspaper to discover that he had married Sarah, mm. especially since they both came from that same background, you know, very well-to-do families, uh, socialites, and yeah, it really broke her heart. But Sarah was really beautiful. Mm. Mm-hmm. Thanks for that. It's a lovely description of her. Extra bit of rock and roll a little history addition. trivia. Thanks. You're welcome. Okay, so that night, George, um, Patty, John, Yoko, Ringo, Maureen, and Chris <laughs> sat in front of the stage on their little folding chairs in like a private little area, and they watched uh, Bob Dylan from oh, magic. kind of the front of the stage. Magic. Yeah. Have you ever seen Bob? No. Uh, well, I know he's like, nowadays people say... It's like a 50-50 chance if it's going to be a good performance or a mumbling mess. But I got to see him a couple years ago, and it was fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I could make out every word. Are they going to say make out? <laughs> I could make out with I him make out any with him. day. Um, yeah, that's coming later in the in yeah. this episode, by the way, guys. So you stick, stick, stick with us. We're getting there. So... She was figuring out, okay, like, I'm going to take the train back now. Uh, and John was like, why would you take the train back? There just happens to be one, like, one spot on on our jet going home for you. So she flew back on their private plane with all of them. Um, and they almost crashed, like, the plane almost crashed. Uh, apparently they went through, God, like, a crazy imagine? round of... And she said they were just chanting. They just chanted um, the the entire time and... Got through it. They, they got through it. Yeah. So she ended up meeting uh, both Leon Russell and Eric Clapton around this time. And she ended up having um, like a relationship, an intimate relationship with Leon Russell. And she at first really liked Eric Clapton and she wanted to maybe have a relationship with him. And then she and en- like they ended up despising each other. Oh, yeah. As the years went on. Oh, yeah. Eric is a difficult man to be around. Oh, yeah. Or was, I should say. Yeah. So 
But they, Leon. Yeah, but Leon. Leon, um, not a great guy either. He <laughs> kind of like straight from the beginning was like, no matter what happens. And she's like, what are you talking about? Why are we starting our relationship going like, no matter what happens? And he would always like allude to like, if we ever like cheat on each other. And she's just like, uh, what? Why are you Come saying that? Come on. Anyways. That's she, like a red flag right there. Yeah, but she, but she kind of uh wasn't going after him at first she wasn't really interested he was pursuing her and the you know age-old thing happened was he wrote a song about her and then yep. she, when he was in the studio and he was singing a song about the pisces apple lady mm-hmm. she's a pisces um she knew that he was really into it she really like speaking of i'm pretty sure if you go on youtube you can find leon talking about this oh nice and chris yeah I think so. Yes, actually, I have it up right here. Oh, you do. Um, yeah, I, I, <laughs> we, I do because I was looking at videos of her this morning. So we'll post some of those. It's funny. Um, Danny Cordell is the one that introduced them, and when the song came on, he gave her kind of a knowing look. Mm. Yeah. So uh, at this point, Chris was uh, like hooking up these musicians together too to like play on each other's albums. So she was like, "Oh, hey, Leon, you should, uh, you know." Paul's looking for Ringo's looking for no I think it was Paul was looking for somebody to play piano on something and they ended up like they just go in and out of the studios together and yeah so she started dating Leon Russell and then she moved to LA with him where she was miserable yeah miserable she left what she was doing at Apple Music to go live with him and so from November of uh, 1969 to March 1970, all of a sudden she was like somebody's old lady. Yeah. And that was it. It's interesting how so many of these women in that era, um, because a lot of the time women sort of are conditioned, like growing up, find the man, be the be the wife. You know, this is this mm-hmm. is the way, this is the path you're supposed to follow. And then, of course when they do follow that they realize wait a minute like i have so much more to give than just this like exactly yeah and she loved keeping busy she loved being of service Mm -hmm. she loved helping out and now all of a sudden she's just at home doing painting by numbers yeah actually doing painting by numbers and Leon was off doing creative things. Yeah. Right? But she couldn't stand just going and sitting and watching him in the studio because if you're not helping or doing anything, then, like, what are you... Feeling useless like is not a nice feeling. Yeah. So they ended up... Uh, Leon ended up cheating on her. Um, Shocker. Yeah. <laughs> and she ended up moving in with uh, a woman named Eileen, who is Denny's secretary at Shelter Records. Um, basically, yeah... Like, she kind of went from place to place, too. So living with certain people. And a lot of the times, like, she would just crash with people. So it seems like she didn't really pay rent between the years of 1969 and 1980. I I got that impression from the book as well. I think I sort of mentioned that to you um, when we were kind of talking about her. And yeah, that was a weird... I was like, do I remember this correctly? Like... Yeah, but she did a lot of stuff for a lot of people, and I kind of like that she was just like, yeah. Yeah. She let people help her, too, Mm -hmm. in a way. Absolutely. So I liked that. It was a give and take, for sure. I mean, she definitely (sighs) earned her place in that world. She worked hard. Yep. She ended up going back to London. 
because that was her like that's where her heart that's was. That's her world, yeah. That's her world that she did not want to be in LA anymore. So she flew back to London and if she wasn't already working for Neil Aspinall as his assistant, she was now. Sorry if I got the little detail messed up. Um, she also went to work for George at Fire Park. So she's being paid by Apple, but she's also now like George's personal personal assistant. everything. Yeah. Um, she remembers driving up to Fryer Park at 2 a.m. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For and, anyone who hasn't seen Fryer Park, Google it right oh now. Oh, my goodness unbelievable and read patty's book the way she describes it it's just magical yeah it's yeah. true magical but it's also like haunted as fuck yeah. so they were all freaked out <laughs> all the time they didn't use like half of them <laughs> more than half of the rooms they all slept the, very In near the, the living room yeah. as possible because that's where the fire was and that's where the heat was and so she talks about pulling up to Fire Park for the f- first time at 2 a.m. And she thought that, like, the guest house was Fire Park. And she was like, oh, it's beautiful, George. And he's like, mm, this way. Um, so she says that she remembers Patty being gracious and friendly and just, like, she was all cozy and her, like, you know, high socks and hair all tousled. And, um, but she later learned that Patty was miffed at George because... He just invited a woman to come live at their home, you know, without asking, yeah, or yeah. consulting. Although or... they are friends at this point, yeah, that's still, she. Like... She's still kind of thinking what are his intentions and yeah. what are his motives, or motives, because as I said before, he he had cheated in the past. It was and it was hard for her to for Patty to trust anybody. Yeah. So um, a guy named Terry lived there too, who... Lots um, of people live there in and out. But it was, yeah, but it was pretty much like the four of them at this time that were there. And she really felt like she was part of the family. Um, Jenny Boyd was married to Mick Fleetwood at this time. So Patty would catch her up on what Jenny was doing in the world and, you know, Fleetwood Mac. Um, but George's moods changed a lot. So he would bounce back and forth very often between like the fun, you know, druggy, um, don't really care attitude of, you know, of, of that kind of George Harrison to the really spiritual George Harrison. And so when he got really spiritual and did his like, you know, he would go on and on about things. Patty and Terry would just go, oh, okay, um, well, it's time for us to go to bed. And Chris would just stay up and and listen to him talk about things. So it's at this point where, you know, George was talking about Nirvana. There's no place like Nirvana. And Chris would say, what is Nirvana? Truly interested in the answer. And so this is what George had to say about that. Or this is what Chris says that George yeah. said. Nirvana is the release of the soul from the endless cycle of rebirth. The final destination. A look of peace spread across his face. I sat there contentedly, wide-eyed, attempting to take in every word he was saying, finding comfort in his soothing voice, being consoled by the idea that there was a great plan for all of us and that a god of some sort was watching over us. Every so often I nodded my head or muttered a soft, wow, or really? You have to deal with the karma of your past lives, Chris. That's the purpose for being here, he said. Say the Hare Krishna chant over and over and you will feel closer to God. George must have been so happy to have someone listen and not just, you know, roll their eyes. (laughs) 
Totally. And I think, you know, Patty did go to India with him and she did try to get into it. But really, the more spiritual George got, the more he detached, the more he detached to everybody, everything, including Patty. Yeah. Their relationship definitely suffered because of his dedication to the Hare Krishna movement. Yeah. Yeah. So this is just shortly before the Krishnas moved in. Mm-hmm. Um, they ended up going to a party. And Chris was at this party sitting by the fire where Ringo engaged her in conversation. Um, and that's where their friendship and relationship kind of started. But Maureen walked straight up to them and pretty much demanded that they leave right away. Maureen could tell. She knew that something was going to happen. And something eventually did happen. Yeah. Which we'll get there. Um... Yeah, it was, and it was beyond Chris that a Beatles wife would see her as a threat. It really was. So it was around this time now that uh, the Krishnas did start moving in. And you can imagine what that might have Poor been like. Poor Patty. Ooh, your whole house is taken over by a bunch of people and children. And, and yeah. no one really watching the children. I remember her talking about that in her book. Yeah. I, I can't even imagine. She said George walked around all day with his hand in his prayer bag, quietly repeating the words, Hari Krishna, Hari Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hari Hari. Friends didn't stop by as much, except for the occasional <laughs> visits from Eric Clapton, who enjoyed sitting with Patty and me in the kitchen. <laughs> I wonder why he was she, there. She was completely oblivious to that, apparently, at the time. And yeah. George other, spent the other time just in the garden. They were all but, oblivious to the <laughs> But that's when... Um, but yeah, okay, so that's, and so Eric was stopping by, but it would be years before he and Patty got together, yeah. but that's where it started. So now we're into April and May of 1970, Paul quits the band. Mm-hmm. And they're all really shocked because every time anybody tried to quit the Beatles, Paul would like get them back together. So um, that's when George started working on All Things Must Pass. Mm-hmm. And I love that record. Oh, God, me too. I love, love, love that record. And so what Chris did was she would sit in the kitchen with George and she'd have her typewriter and she typed up all of the lyrics to that album. So he'd come to her with like backs of envelopes, like with lyrics on backs of envelopes and Apple stationery. And then she'd type it up and then she'd give it to him and then he changed a few things back and forth and then she'd give it back and then she would perfect them for him. So she said that at this point, point um the garden at fire park was in full bloom and patty just cooked with the beautiful herbs and she was just always making the meals and just always trying to make fire park a home make it more beautiful make it more welcoming but she was feeling left out and chris didn't know this at the time but patty was feeling left out between the relationship between george and chris Mm -hmm. and george started getting kind of cranky again at this point where he started getting jealous of chris and patty's relationship (laughs) so so, you know, Patty went to Los Angeles to go buy some things for Fire Park and Patty wanted Chris to go with her and George didn't want Chris to go. So then Patty said, well, you, I'll leave my car here for you, Chris, and you take it whenever you want. So Chris took the car out because then she was left alone at Fire Park with nothing to do. <laughs> and then George got mad at her for taking the car out. So things were starting to get a little bit tense at Fire Park. So she ended up moving to London with a woman named Diane who worked for John Lennon. Okay. Now, she answered the phone one day, and she said, hello, and it was like, a, hello, who is this? She was like, this is Chris O'Dell, and she was like, who is this? And she was like, oh, and then she got like a, oh, 
it was Yoko on the phone. Yoko Ono called. And Yoko was pissed because Chris was living with Diane, who worked for John. And she didn't, Yoko didn't like that because she said Chris was a part of George's camp. Oh, no. Yeah. So then she moved again. Oh, and no. she went to go live with Eric Clapton. Oh, God. Who she still had a crush on at this point and was still oblivious to the affair that he was having with Patty. And she moved into Hurtwood Edge. And so she was like, okay, well, I'll help them with the house and I'll do this here and there. I'll, the dominoes were living there. And she said it was just like a mess. But she'd cook and then she would like once she started living there, she would listen to Eric go on and on about the how torturous it was that he wasn't able to be with Patty. Oh, she talks God. about this one time where he started smashing all of these plates and yeah. He really put, like, all of his happiness on her, didn't he? Yeah. And then when he got her, what did he do? Oh, he's such an asshole. Yep. (laughs) Okay. So she was living with them at this time, and um, they were doing a lot of drugs. So they were mixing drinking with cocaine with Mandrax, which was an upper, and then Quaaludes, which was a downer. So... Um, she was being, I think she, she went in and out of Apple Music or of Apple for Apple Music. I'm so used to saying that, um, from Apple Records, like on and off. And Mm -hmm. there was at this point where she got a call from George that warned her that like there wasn't a spot for her there right now. Okay. So then she was out of a job. So then she went back to LA to work for Peter Asher where she lived with him and his wife. So she's always running around from one thing to the next, but even, but she never had like trouble getting a job, right? So then this is what she said uh, were her duties. I settled right into the work routine, putting in long hours for Peter, just as I had when I worked for him at Apple. I helped organize his office, located in the guest house, answered the phones, typed the correspondence, made appointments, booked studios, organized itineraries, took care of the musicians he represented, arranging transportation, helping them with personal problems, and generally watching over them, letting them know I was right there if any problems arose. That's her job. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So, around this time, so do we need to do a year check-in for everybody? Like, what year? It's 1971 at this point. And uh, George comes to Malibu at this time. So, she got her distance from George and Patty and everybody. And George comes to Malibu, and he kept inviting her over. And he said, like, please come over. Kept calling her. And uh, she wouldn't. Like, she was just feeling weird about everything that happened and, yeah. you know. They're far from how, home. And- yeah, and, and how his attitude had changed. Um, but finally, she goes to visit him. And this is where she learns that George Harrison had written a song, song. about her yes. and for her. It was about, and all, but it was like, I think it was mostly like, for her so he says yes miss odell yeah it's called miss odell won't you call me miss odell (laughs) um so he says i have something for you he said he jumped up from the couch and headed for the bedroom i felt my heart beat faster Uh uh-oh i thought what if he comes back and with a negligee and has me try it on (laughs) you just never knew with george he returned half a minute later with his acoustic guitar and sat down next to me on the couch Pushing his hair back behind both ears, holding the pick in his right hand between his forefinger and thumb, he looked at me, his head tilted, and said, I'm going to make you famous. I had no idea what to expect. He began singing, looking straight at me. It was such a fun song, so light and folksy. 
it really is it's really really cute i've been listening to it all morning and uh she one of her first reactions to it was not only did she love it but she was worried about what patty was gonna think like what could patty think that uh something had happened with the relationship um but uh he ended up playing it for patty and patty loved it she liked it Mm mm-hmm so at this point, All Things Must Pass was a huge success and um, everybody just kind of chilling in L.A., just like enjoying everything that happened. And so Patty came down to L.A. too and now they're all just like hanging out in L.A. And uh, things with the relationships were mended and, and everything's fine. I think they just all kind of needed a little bit of time away yeah. from each other. Um, so she was making a lot of food and cooking with Patty at this point. And then that's when the concert for Bangladesh Uh, The idea for that came and Ravi was talking to George about it. And so George got really excited. And George really wanted to do something now that All Things Must Pass was a huge success. So he got everybody that he wanted together to come and play this festival. Um, At this time, uh, Eric Clapton was huge into heroin. He was definitely invited, but he was into heroin because of the threat that he had made to Patty. If you don't be with me, I'm going to go and do heroin. What a terrible thing to do to someone. She's a married woman, and he's throwing, like, his life or death on her, basically. If you don't leave George and be with me, I'm going to become a heroin addict. Yeah, so that's what he did. But um, George invited him anyways, and he also invited Bob Dylan. So those were the other two really big names at this festival, which took place on August 1st at Madison Square Gardens. So... Chris hung out with Patty in their suite, looking over Central Park, um, and they just like went shopping, had fun, watched TV, and George was really edgy and distracted because he was really focusing on last-minute details. And then he was worried that Eric and that Eric Clapton and Bob Dylan wouldn't show up because at the last minute, John Lennon didn't show up because he had had some fight with Yoko. So Eric Clapton was on his way, but everybody was worried because he was in really bad shape, and they yeah. actually had to find him heroin so that so he, he could, could be up. functional. Yeah. Yeah, and if Bob Dylan didn't show up, well, like, that would just be a snub. Mm-hmm. So, um, he ended up showing up. Yes. Bob Dylan ended up, like, showing up, and Eric Clapton did a great job, and he got it together, and it was a really great festival. So, 1971, she gets another call. Because mm-hmm. at this point, she's not really working for, like, her work was suffering. She just, she wasn't. Yeah, she's trying to figure out what what's, what's the next, next move. Yeah. Well, she got uh, a call. And she got a call from a man named Leonard who ran Rolling Stones Records. So he needed an assistant. And so if he needs an assistant, it's pretty much like the Rolling Stones need an assistant. And that's what she became. Oh, yes. (laughs) Enter Mick. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I really like... um, I really like her relationship with them Mm -hmm. um and so what she did is like she found homes for uh, mick to be like to stay at in la with bianca and for keith to stay in with anita and a place for mick taylor and his wife rose um so this is what he said you'll need to find nice houses for them to rent take care of daily business 
book the recording sessions, attend to their personal needs, and then there's the album to worry about. Getting the cover designed, lining up the photographers, the whole fucking thing. Charlie and Bill will be in town now and then too, and they'll need hotel rooms, limos, cash, dry cleaning, that kind of stuff. I'm hiring you as my personal assistant, so you'll also be helping with the contracts, secretarial work, phone calls, and all of the rest of it. Can you handle that? Marshall leaned over in his chair and actually took a breath. I can handle it, I said. Great. Yeah. So, yeah. She could handle it. Yeah, she did. She definitely could. So this was the album that they're talking about is for Exile on Main Street. And she's actually on the back cover of that album. A picture of her. I've, I love that album so much. Do you, Can you picture what I'm... I should have had it out here. I can't, actually. Um, so another thing that she did uh was she worked on the song lyrics for XL on main street so she would listen to like what mick was like she would listen to it and then she actually wrote it the lyrics that way and then she'd have him check them and and kind of went on like that and so one thing that she said that was interesting when she was finding all of these houses like these perfect houses for them to live in during that time it reminded her that um they didn't even have security really or gates or anything and she said that Leon had said to her once, someday we'll all live in gated houses. And at the time, she thought he was just being pessimistic, but really it ended up being true. Unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. So she said that she didn't like stopping in to see Anita and Keith very often because it was dark and depressing. They were deep into their... Uh, heroin. Yeah, and it's so funny because people can go and like listen to the episode on Patty Boyd and George Harrison, or they can go back and listen to the like the one that you did on Anita Pallenberg, and like yeah, yeah. So these stories they are really intersecting. It's other. amazing. Yep. So she said um, that she didn't take Anita's bad manners or drugged out personality personally because she felt absolutely no connection to her. Mm-hmm. She said she was a man's woman, not a woman's woman like Patty, and we pretty much just ignored each other. Yeah. So she liked Keith a lot, and unlike Mick, he didn't need a lot. So she'd do Keith spanking, she'd run little errands for him, and he'd always want her to hang out afterwards, but she was always really reluctant to do that. She didn't want to, like, stay around and hang out with them because she said it was just it dark. Was, it was bad scene then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She helped out with Mick Jagger's personal life, responding to party invitations for him, booking Bianca's hair and nail appointments. Um, but she thought it was fun. She liked doing those things because at nighttime she'd go to recording sessions and if there wasn't anything to do during the day, she'd just hang out by the pool. Mm-hmm. She went to a Chuck Berry concert with Mick and Keith once. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. Um, and there was one time where she was sitting around with uh, Keith and Mick and she had given them the newest uh, issue of Rolling Stone magazine and Keith was reading about the Bangladesh concert, just like talking shit about George Harrison. Oh. And uh, she said, you know, George is my friend. friend. <laughs> and they kind of went, oh, yeah, you're Beatles. You're a Beatles yeah, girl. Yeah, Beatles. And that's what she said. Like I was. I, I loved the Rolling Stones, but I was a Beatles girl tr- yeah. like through and through. And, uh, you know, she went on tour with the Stones. She became good friends with Astrid, who was with Bill. She went with them to the Playboy Mansion. She traveled on their jet. And she said that she hardly spent any time in her seat because she was all, always up talking to somebody or other. Keith did end up sending on her on errands to get his drugs. Oh, yeah. And she said it never occurred to her to say no. Mm. And then she said, somewhere around Dallas, I started sleeping with Mick. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So she said it was no big deal. Like, it wasn't a big thing. Um, It was a simple relationship. Mick liked to spend time with me. I loved the attention. And sleeping with him strengthened the trust between us. I bet that most of the women who worked for Mick had slept with him. 
If there had been a job description for being employed by the Stones back then, I'm pretty sure it would have included a, provi- <laughs> a proviso with me. that went something like this. Sleep with Mick whenever he asks. Aww. So she didn't have any romantic fantasies about the future with him. Kind of like Pamela. Pamela DeBar when she was with him. Yeah. They enjoyed it. It was fun. But they were like, we are not. Like, he's they not. They both knew it was up. Like, this wasn't a romantic relationship. It was just a fun fling. Yeah. She she said, I didn't have any romantic fantasies about the future. And I never once, not ever thought, boy, I should like to be Mick's girlfriend. No. Being Mick's girlfriend would have been too much work. He was just too unpredictable, too unfaithful, too well, just too much. Yeah. I hear that. Man, this is going to be one of the longest episodes. Because <laughs> I, like, how can we, like, leave these things out? I know, they're so good. We're going to keep going. Um, so now we're in 1973. Ringo and Harry Nelson are shooting the Son of Dracula movie. Mm-hmm. And so she uh, showed, like, she was invited to go see them on set, which she dri- which she did. She was drinking scotch and snorting coke with them and Patty, um, visiting the set. And she said at this point, drugs were really starting to affect her emotional and mental state. Starting this, to get too, too much. Yeah. yeah. The Stones tour was over. She didn't have a job. Um, she was just getting messed up and hanging around at the Chateau Mormont all the time. She was spending more time alone in her apartment doing drugs. Um, but that's when her relationship with Maureen really started to get to take off because Maureen was kind of depressed and dark at this time, too. So they'd spend every day together. Um, they would spend the, the entire day together. They'd start drinking and like smoking pretty early on during the day. And then Ringo would come back from the studio and they would hang out for the rest of the night together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, Maureen talks about her early relationship with Ringo. Um, she would always, she'd always be stirring things up for Chris, but like in a nice way, like she would always organize and surprise things for Chris. Like, for example, Chris mentioned that she really wanted to go see David Bowie Mm -hmm. and Maureen was like, I don't know why you'd want to do that. And then the next day she got her like tickets and then she even set up like an afterward, like um, everyone going out for dinner together after the show, David Bowie, Angie, uh, Mick, Ronson, Ringo, Maureen, they were all having... It's interesting that they were so close considering what's going to happen later. Yep. So she was saying, so Chris was saying that she had met Angie before because her and Patty had interviewed Angie for a book about women behind the scenes in rock and roll. What? Where's this book? Yeah. So it's on. So I'll show you the page. It's on page 251 that they talked about. It. And it's like, where is this book? Did this know. book ever end up like we need to talk to Chris about this? Yes. Um. So I just wrote rock and roll, like the scenes in the rock and roll world. And then I just wrote WTF, question mark. (laughs) Where did that go? Yeah. So now it's the end of 1973, Christmas in England. Maureen invited her to spend Christmas with her, but she usually spent it with Patty and George. So what she did this time was decided to spend Christmas with Maureen and Ringo and then New Year's with Patty and George. And this hurt Patty. And this hurt Patty for a few different reasons. Now, what Chris didn't know at this time was that Maureen was engaged in a relationship with George Harrison. Yep. So we're talking, we've already alluded to the fact that Chris O'Dell gets with Ringo, Mm -hmm. but that wasn't before Maureen started spending a lot of time at Friar Park and she would even start sleeping over there. Just right in front of everyone. Yeah, she would stay over. And so there there was a point where 
Chris was upstairs with Patty in, in her room going, Patty, what is going on? And um, then there was another famous moment where it was George, Ringo, Patty, Maureen, and, and Chris. Chris. <laughs> and George says, George looks over at Ringo and says, you know, Ringo, I'm in love with your wife. And Ringo said, better you than someone we don't know. Exactly. Which happens to George. Yeah. What, a few years later when Eric goes, I got to tell you, man, I'm in love with your wife. And it was kind of the same thing. So that's when we're talking about like they almost just preferred to keep it in the family. Yeah. It doesn't mean that it wasn't hurtful. It doesn't mean that like people were pissed. And there was a point where um, Patty said to Chris, oh, that George is such a monster. And like, and then on the other hand, she had George like kind of whispering in her ear, like, it's not easy being George Harrison. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, poor you. Poor George. You know, George saying like, Chris, you're the lucky one. So um, Maureen said that her relationship with George Harrison was emotional, not physical. And then this is when Chris started hanging out more and more with Ringo. Oh, one more thing about keeping into the family. At this point, John was dating a woman named May. Yep. Who Yoko encouraged because she saw that John was starting to pull away. And then again, it was the same thing that she mm-hmm. was like, well, you at least... At least I know. And at least... At least I know you. Yeah. You're, you're with me. Get this out of your system, basically. Yeah. That lasted, what, like a year, a year and a half yeah, or something? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. So um, one night, Chris finds herself with Ringo uh, in the studio, and things start to happen. Like, emotionally, they start kind of seeing each other in, in a different light. Um, and they had a dance. Like, they danced together, and they were face-to-face. She said she, she lo- really looked at at him in a different way this time and there was one night where they went to roman polanski's for a party which ended up being really weird they said um in santa monica and they spent like the whole night and morning together and like just talking and then they pretty much spent the whole the next few weeks with him in a beach house in santa monica she ended up calling him rich um because maureen called him richie Mm. Um, but Maureen and Ringo were still together. They're still married. Um, yeah. And Ringo asked Chris not to tell Maureen. But then there was a point where Maureen just like walked, like she didn't walk in on them, but she knew that they were spending time together. And Maureen just like poured everybody a drink. They all sat down and Maureen was like, Chris, are you sleeping with my husband? Mm-hmm. And then Chris had this thing, this loyalty thing. Well, Ringo asked me not to say anything, but Maureen is my best friend, one of my best friends right now. So she said, yes, we're sleeping together. Ringo was pissed for a really, like, for a while. But they all ended up staying friends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they were all cheating on each other. Right? Yeah. So 1974, she becomes the tour manager for Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. So she said her, like, as a tour manager, she was the babysitter, mother, secretary, therapist, problem solver, travel agent, maid, and alarm clock. Bet you that one was a a difficult, uh, we all know what they think of each other. She said it was madness. She said it was a dysfunctional gathering of egos. Yeah. (laughs) David ranted, Stephen pouted, Graham mediated, and Neil stayed as far away as possible. (laughs) 
Oh man. Oh, all right. So we're I'm on my last page of notes here. We're wrapping up, but it's we're not losing momentum. <laughs> because... <laughs> so it was on this tour that she met Cameron Crow. And he said, do you know you're one of the only female tour managers out there? Mm. Pretty cool, huh? That's what he said there. She said that he was uncomplicated, unpretentious, and undemanding. So it was around this time that Patty left George for Eric. And um, and if you don't know that story, ooh, it's listen, the first, episode. Episode. It's the first yeah. episode of this entire podcast. And... Um, that's quite a that's quite you know a story. the first time that she ever saw that chris ever saw eric saw eric clapton's name was spray painted somewhere in london and yeah. it said clapton is god and she said he was by the by this point and especially because how he treated patty the mm-hmm. whole wedding being a bet and how he just totally used her and then almost like threw her away after yeah. they were married she said he was no god to me he and was it a should royal be pain in the ass it should be noted that eric clapton's the one who spray painted that all over london <laughs> <laughs> what <laughs> i'm pretty sure yeah oh okay so um yeah she was a bridesmaid at their wedding but she wouldn't even stand up there with with them because of like how eric might have just like made a comment or something um yeah he was a miserable man at that at that point in life yeah have you ever noticed how he looks so different in every photo of him i can like i i know it's him but i feel like if you didn't know that 60s eric clapton is like 1975 eric clapton like they look so different. Yeah. Like, they're hardly the same person. Yep. And I guess they weren't really. Like, the 70s were not good for him. <laughs> no. So, 1975 to 1976, she becomes a tour manager for Bob Dylan on his Rolling Thunder tour. Ah, oh, Bob. What even? So, she had another... So, it was another incident where she's dancing mm-hmm. with one of these guys that like something starts to happen so it was an after party at a howard johnson and she finds herself with bob dylan alone the last two people there dancing and so they're dancing and he's telling her that she smells so good and she couldn't exactly say it back because he had been playing all night so he didn't smell bad but she he didn't smell great is what she ended up saying and he kind of like said something like um, about being attracted to her and that like he could tell that she felt the same way. This he was like, seducing her. He was seducing her, but she was kind of like, uh, oh, yeah, she kind of was like, I guess I'd better go. Oh, and he said this. I know that you know I'm making a pass at you, and you know that I know you're interested. <laughs> and then he gave me a little kiss, not quite on the lips, and we said goodnight. Aww. Yeah. But don't worry, guys. You're like, <laughs> oh, no, she blew it. Mm-mm, mm-mm. Mm-mm. Nope. It happened. She redeemed herself. <laughs> it happened. So he invites, he invited her up to his room after a, after a night. He said... He disappeared for a moment and came back holding a picture of himself. He looked really young, 
with his little boy face surrounded by beautiful curls. I'd guess the picture was taken when he was in his early 20s. Somebody gave this to me the other night, he said, handing the photograph to me with a perplexed look on his face. I took the photograph and studied it for a moment, then looked up at him. I wasn't sure what he wanted me to say. Did I ever really look like that, he said? Was I ever really that person? I found the whole thing kind of weird. I didn't know Bob well enough to understand what he was asking, but it seemed to me that he felt as if he were looking at someone else. I wondered if he wanted me to connect the Dylan in the present, the person I had come to know, with this young man in the photograph. Did he want to talk about the time that had passed? Did he want to be reassured that he really was the same person who was framed in that picture? I almost got the sense that he wanted to go back in time, back to the beginning, before he was so famous. Or maybe it was just Bob Dylan's way of making small talk. (laughs) Well, you were a lot younger then, I said, hoping that would end the conversation. (laughs) He put the picture on the night table next to the bed and sat down next to me. I'm tired, he said. Want to lie down? And it just kind of went from there. Yeah, I do. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean... Since then, she worked with Led Zeppelin, ELO. In 1986, she had a son. She'd gotten married. Um, Rinko was the godfather. Yeah, and she just, um, you know, got sober. I think this episode's going to be released on Bob Dylan's birthday. Oh, my God. Actually, I saw Michael DeBar just release something saying that it was it's going to be Bob Dylan's birthday In week. In a couple of days. Yeah. Oh, perfect. Yep. Oh, great. So, yeah, Chris O'Dell, she's um, a licensed professional counselor and licensed substance abuse counselor. She's living in Arizona. Still helping people. Yeah. And so she says that she has, like, you know, these degrees but she also has all of these pictures of her with these bands and she calls them her degrees of good luck, great friends, being in the right place at the right time. She says they are in truth my degrees of life. Ah, oh, beautiful. Beautiful. Great way <gasps> to end her her tale as well. Yeah. What a life, my god. Oh. Totally. Um and she's in Arizona and Helping people. Helping people. And uh, Miss Odell. We love you. We love you. Thank you so much for this wonderful account. Thank you for being there. And hopefully um, we'll get to talk to you one of these days. Yes. I just It's so great when these women share their stories. And mm-hmm. we, we love uh, spreading the word on them. We sure do. Mm. Okay. Well, thank you for um, lending me this book, Langs. It was a joy to read. I, I'm sad that it's over, but I really, really loved it. I really felt like you, could, you just felt like you were there. I read it when it came out, so it's been a while. So thank you for uh, reminding me of all the <laughs> awesome little tidbits in there. This oh. was fun. Yeah, <laughs> it really was. Okay, everybody, if you want uh, more muses and stuff, then definitely go back and listen to some um, past episodes. You can find them on iTunes. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can also find them on our website at musesandstuff.ptbopodcasters.ca. Yeah, and you can find us on Twitter at Shanti and Links. And you can find us on Instagram at Muses and Stuff Podcast. That's right. Thank you for listening, everybody. And we'll be back with you next week and we'll tell you how Webfest went. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So take care. We love you. Bye for now. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth 
of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwein, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.